is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. And just like that, it's June, and you're tuned into the sixth episode of Book Choice so far this year on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. My name is Paige Nick, and I'll be your book host for the next hour. We'll also be joined by all our regular reviewers. Plus, we have an interview with international best-selling author Lionel Shriver. And we top off the show with Rodney Trudgeon, our own person of note. So, let's get on with the books. First up, Beryl Achenberger is here to tell us about a new local title to hit the shelves called The Lightness of Air by Angela Miller-Rothbart, which I believe has quite a fascinating author backstory. To decide to start writing a novel at 70 is quite something, but for Angela Miller-Rothbart, her love of writing led her to recount a story that she had been told by a friend. From novella to full-length book, The Lightness of Air evolved as she consulted publishers and colleagues who encouraged her to write more. The result is a novel that will grasp you tightly by the hand and not let you go until the last page as you take this journey with a Bergen-Belsen survivor. The beautiful writing will sweep you along in the waves of loss, survival and happiness. It's a memorable reminder that happiness is of one's own making. There are many Holocaust novels, some better than others, but each one is a reminder of the resilience of the human spirit and the will to live. Each has their place in keeping memory alive and passing on a legacy to future generations as the last of the survivors pass on. Lest we forget... It is a writer's skill to hook us on the first page, and so it was when I picked up this book. As the book opens, we meet Bergen-Belsen survivor Helena Jablonski in 1990. It is afternoon, and Helena is at her desk, contemplating what has arrived that day. It has been there all day. The long white envelope is weathered with age. The familiar script on the front faded, but still legible. That and the foreign stamp indicate to her what it is certain to contain. And so we are enticed into this story of love and courage. She is aware that the contents could alter her life, and she knows how swiftly the world can tumble and change. As she muses, this is my connection with past and present, but will it deepen old wounds? There is such empathy and tenderness in this story that will resonate with families across the world. Many survivors were unable to speak of their experiences, and so it is with gratitude that we are able to journey with this courageous young woman. Navigating a life post-war and across continents to find some peace from her horrific losses, the winding path through the decades is rich and engaging, textured and heart-rending. Our survivors of the worst horrors that humans had to endure face a future so bereft is hard to understand, but Miller Rothbart articulates the basic tenets of loss, love and happiness with a rhythmic prose that is mesmerizing. As the world shifts in 1939, Helena, from a privileged Polish-Jewish family, is incarcerated in Bergen-Belsen. As liberation dawns, she is reunited with her closest friend Sophia. The two young girls struggle to the American zone in their attempt to get to Palestine. 
Both their futures are shaped by the kindness of those trying to help the displaced, hollow survivors. Helena is billeted with the warm and homely Rachel, who becomes her lifelong friend. Max Harris, the young American volunteer, plays a pivotal role in her life, and we meet new characters who shape Helena's future. We travel from Poland to Paris, New York and the Middle East, and the winelands of Pal, South Africa, where each stop brings a richness to Helena's shattered life. It is a testament to resilience, to grasping opportunity, to opening one's arms to friends who become family. Miller Rothbard is adept at creating the backstories of the main characters, shifting effortlessly from present to past to create families, heirlooms, and an ineffable atmosphere that brings you into their homes. Above all, the novel is a story of hope and forgiveness, while never sidestepping the horrors of the war and the painful blocks on which a survivor rebuilds their shattered life. The Lightness of Air by Angela Miller Rothbart is published by Texture. Red and yellow and pink and green, purple and orange and blue. I can sing a rainbow, sing a rainbow, sing a rainbow too. Listen with your eyes, listen with your eyes, and sing everything you see. You can sing a rainbow, sing a rainbow, sing along with me. Red and yellow and pink and green, purple and orange and. Now we can sing a rainbow, sing a rainbow, sing a rainbow too. Listen with your eyes, listen with your eyes, and sing everything you see. You can sing a rainbow, sing a rainbow, sing along. Sing a rainbow, sing a rainbow, sing a rainbow too. That was Sing a Rainbow by Val Dunican. International best-selling author Lionel Shriver has written 16 novels. My personal Shriver favorite is Post-Birthday World, which came out back in 2007. Shriver was recently in Cape Town for the Franschuk Literary Festival and joined us in the Fine Music Radio studios to chat to Beverly Rose Miller about her latest novel, Should We Stay or Should We Go? Lionel Shriver rarely pulls her punches, and you'll hear in this interview that neither does Beverly. Welcome to the show. I'm Beverly Ruth Muller, talking today on Book Choice with great pleasure to the internationally award-winning author Lionel Shriver, who is here to talk about her latest book, On Death, Should We Stay or Should We Go?
You will probably know Lionel Shriver's work, We Need to Talk About Kevin, which was an international best-selling book years ago and is still one of the great, great books that you should read if you haven't done so already. But today we're going to be talking about the taking of life, perhaps our own taking of life. Lionel has written a book about a 50-something-year-old couple, both working in the National Health Service, who are medical professionals and who make a pact to take their own lives, commit suicide, when they are 80 years old. I'm going to ask Lionel to explain a little more about the book. Welcome, Lionel. Well, I know it sounds dark, <laughs> so if you're put off at first, I'm sympathetic. I'd feel the same way. What makes this book uh, palatable is the structure. Yes, we start with a couple who've had bad experiences with their parents getting decrepit and also a lot of exposure to geriatric tragedy in their professions. And they figure, well, you know, beyond 80, life is pretty much downhill. Let's go out on a high note and, you know, spend all our money and then just call it quits. But the structure of the book is very playful so that it cuts across the darkness of the premise. Much as in life, you turn the page and they're almost 80. You know, the decision is upon them. So I have 12 chapters, each one exploring a different outcome, in many of which the couple decide to give it a miss. And I'm asking the question implicitly, okay, were they to go through with this pact of theirs, which is a little impractical emotionally, I accept that, if they go through with it, what will they miss out on? And also, what will they escape? And I'm especially interested in what they will escape. That was really an interesting part of the book for me because you're a little bit lulled into a sense of insecurity in the beginning. You go along with the narrative. I have to say they're a very tender couple. They're in love. They've had a good marriage. They've got three slightly difficult children. And they do this, in a sense, as an act of love. Certainly that Cyril thinks it's an act of love. Mm -hmm. And he, I think I should say this, he is a medical doctor. He has access to pills they put in a little black box in the fridge and they keep there for the day. One of the problems that I came across, by the way, I thought the book was very witty, mm. it very thought-provoking, also occasionally really heartless. <laughs> so it plays through all those emotions. The things that I struggled with a little bit was not everyone has access to the magic beans. Of course not. I make it easy for them because that's not what this book is about. You know, how are they going to do it? How hard that is? That's a different book. Maybe an interesting one. But uh, the method doesn't interest me in this particular instance. If we were to talk in nonfiction terms about the whole assisted dying issue, which is interesting in, in its own right, that is also not what this book is about, really. Then we could get into the difficulty, how hard, how hard it is, really, to kill yourself, because we don't develop drugs to kill people. You do in the United States, I think there are four states in the United States where you can send away for an end of life box, which you keep in the wardrobe or wherever you want to keep it. I always thought that was a very good idea personally, because I think it is an individual choice. Many people would strongly disagree. But you also have a, a kind of curved ball in the book, which who is the, the white van man. Is he the entropy, the, the kind of unexpected 
deliverer of the goods when you least <laughs> expect it. Yes, the white van man, which is, of course, a UK stereotype of a terrible driver, and for some reason they're always in white vans, comes along when you least expect it. And I think it is it's the element of chance. So that this is a book that is all about people trying to plan for the future. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> so there's always this the anarchy that you can't plan for. That life happens when you're doing something else kind, yes. of, <laughs> kind of sense. What I liked so much was that much of each story had little familiar aspects to it, getting into bed, the fact that Cyril loves getting into bed with his wife, curling around her, although in each of the 12 narratives, sometimes that changes a little bit depending on their mental health uh, and so on. For me, the darkest of all the 12 was when they are sectioned into a care home, mm. and then they lose all their power, and that seemed to be, to me, to be a worse face than death. No, well, that's the idea. And there are two care home chapters, one of which is much more cheerful, at least by all appearances, because it's, you know, it's a luxury care home. It has everything. It has snooker tables. It has a swimming pool. And everything you could ever want. It's a luxury beyond imagining that, you know, you order from a, an elaborate menu and uh, with a wild mushroom frittata or whatever. But then there's the other one, and that's the one you're thinking of. <laughs> and it's a deliberately as awful as I could conceive of. And I, th I think that most of us are fearful about in being institutionalized like that is loss of agency. So it's an infantilizing experience. One of the first things that happens when they check into this facility or are checked in because it's not not up to them. Their children have put them there. You know, the Dr. Mimi <laughs> who runs the care home finds the bottle of Amontillado sherry in the wife's luggage and removes it. You know who's going to be drinking it. And everything in their life is no longer in their control. What they eat, what they do, all the reading matter is taken away. And, you know, oh, and there is no control over the television set so that they're continually having to watch Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmare or Come Dine With Me. <laughs> so, and, and that's my idea of hell, and I think that I would share that with a lot of people. I noticed with some amusement that you inserted yourself into your book. You talk about this annoying author, Lionel, and you describe it, the author as self-promoting, smug, and hysterical, in <laughs> which I thought was quite brave of you. And I also noticed at the end that you have your own directive about, I'm assuming you're writing now not as the author of a novel, but the author of your own life. How do you feel about the end of life? conflicted. I mean, on the one hand, yes, I mean, the book explores all kinds of fears for old age that, you know, they're my fears. You know, I don't want to end up in that care home without my Amontillado sherry. But on the other, I came to an appreciation in the course of writing it of how stark the choice is. And, you know, that's by the time you're elderly and you're smart, <laughs> you realize that even the chance to be elderly is a privilege. You know, that's given the alternative. And so I think a lot of what a, a fruitful and graceful old age is about is in some ways clinging on to life and savoring what remains to you because of the alternative. That is, it may be your twilight, but you can still see the, the last rays of the sun.
unless there's suffering involved. Yes. Oh, I, I have a completely different attitude on that. I mean, that physical pain, there's nothing worse, especially beyond a certain point. And I think anybody who's been through extreme physical pain knows exactly what I mean by that point. And I have every appreciation for being in utter agony, and therefore every second seems like a week. And simply getting yourself from that one second to another is so costly that it's not worth it. And I think that's where assisted dying is extremely useful. I'm hugely sympathetic with people who find life so physically horrific that they will do anything to get out. Before I let you go, I just want to go back quickly to another kind of suffering, and that was your book on Kevin. Just be, Kevin is, of course, about a 15-year-old teenage boy who commits a mass killing in a school, mm -hmm. something that, unfortunately, America has become associated with. Just this weekend, we had the tragedy of the racial killing mm -hmm. of 10 black people in Buffalo. Just before I came in, I checked in Wikipedia. There have been 198 mass killings in America this year so wow. far. Why is nothing being done about gun control? Um, it's not an easy problem to solve in the United States, given how the Second Amendment is interpreted presently. Yes. And, you know, broadly, I support gun control on a self-interested level because I want to be able to walk down the street <laughs> and feel relatively safe. One can only feel better than relatively safe. But there just isn't an easy answer, and I, and I wish there were. We need better mental health care because a lot of these incidents have to do with people being a little bit crazy, not to put too fine a point on it. Yeah. So, I mean, I wish I, I wish I had an answer. I mean, back when I did a lot of interviews around Kevin, uh, I would often talk about the fact that we might be better off if we gave these incidents less publicity and therefore however, in inadvertently didn't glorify the perpetrators as much, didn't give them as much as much press. But, you know, that's that's not easy either. I mean, I, what are we going to do, not cover that story in Buffalo? Sure. Well, I, th I think I can only go back to something that I said to you 10 years ago. You were talking about the legalization of drugs, and you said it'll never happen in our lifetime. And I said, oh, but we said that about apartheid. Maybe we can say the same about gun control, that one day maybe there will be some kind of restrictions placed. Yeah, yeah. better, more yes. effective restrictions. I, I, yes. I think there's no reason to just assume that it's impossible. We've been talking to Lionel Shriver about her new book, Should We Stay or Should We Go? And I strongly recommend that you read it. Thank you. Pleasure to talk to you. What an incredible author, and what an honor to be able to host her in our studio. A quick note here, this interview was recorded when Lionel Shriver was in Cape Town a few weeks ago, before the devastating recent elementary school shooting in Texas. Our hearts go out to everyone affected by such senseless acts, and it just goes to show how Shriver's book on Kevin, which was published in 2003, sadly remains topical. In addition, I think as our life expectancy continues to increase, the subject of Shriver's latest book is also going to remain very hotly debated. Thank you for a fantastic in-depth interview, Beverly. Some music now with Look to the Rainbow, sung by Ella Logan and Donald Richards from the Broadway cast of Finnegan's Rainbow. As our regular listeners know, all the music for this show is selected by Rick Everett and compiled by Dave Woods. 
And this month, all our tracks are about rainbows. Because, well, it's June, we get some rain, we're the Rainbow Nation, and I hope yours leads straight to a big fat pot of gold. In Glacomora, where we come from, there's an old legend. You'll never grow old, and you'll never grow poor, if you look to the rainbow beyond the next moor. Lovely legend. I wonder who thought it up. My father. On the day I was born, said my father, said he, I've an elegant legacy waiting for ye. Tis a rhyme for your lip and a song for your heart to sing it whenever the world falls apart look 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 to the rainbow follow it over the hill and stream look 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 to the rainbow follow the fellow who follows the dream so I bundled me heart, and I roamed the world free to the east with the lark, to the west with the sea, and I'll search all the earth, and I'll scan all the skies till I find it at last in me own true love's eyes. Look, look, look to the rainbow, follow it over the hill and stream. Look, look, look to the rainbow, follow the fellow who follows Books here on Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books. Melvin Minar, what did you make of The Boer War in Colour by Tinnis LaRue, published by Jonathan Ball? The authenticity of a photograph, the truth of the image, the realness of the likeness has been a constant debate since the invention of this glorious medium of record. When the French scientist Joseph Nips took what is considered to be the very first photograph in 1826 of the view from the window at his family's country home in Le Gras, not even he was sure that he recorded a ghostly scene or the actual panorama 
on the butamine-coated plate in his camera obscura. In an era of digital manipulation, sophisticated computer intervention in photography, that great debate of real or unreal continues, and happily so, because all art should be open-ended, ever-evolving for both artists and viewers. Local history photo enthusiast Tinis Leroux has shifted that debate into gloriously different direction with his beautiful book, The Boer War in Color. Leroux has painstakingly brought color into very old photographs taken more than a century ago during the historic South African conflict. Saying colored in will not do to describe the process because he used extensive research and the most sophisticated photo imagining tools to bring to life people who resided as mere phantoms in albums and museum archives. Jonathan Ball Publishers came elegantly to the project, bringing out a vividly present book to tickle not only the eyes, but indeed to reignite our interest in events that actually happen in real life places with real life people. You get the point about my argument. Everyone knows ancient photographic images, often in oval frames, hanging on family walls, portraits of ancestors gently toned to resemble life by delicate, now fading, watercolor paint. Many of our parents have rough printed 1950s snaps from Kodak color, or even dissolving Polaroid prints. But Tinas Leroux and his band, worldwide band of enthusiasts, are onto something different. They have a mission to bring the ghost back to life, and they succeed with remarkable results. Washed out soldiers become men and boys. Guns and slings are no longer illustrated props, but dangerous weapons. People posing are not simple stand-ups for the heavy camera on a tripod, but body language of dare and enthusiasm, bold and brave. The fine movie director Peter Jackson caught the sensation in 2018 when he released a colorized documentary painstakingly put together First World War full clips and with a clever poetic touch called it They Shall Not Grow Old. At the time he explained, and I quote, I wanted to reach through the fog of time and pull these men into the modern world so they can regain their humanity once more. This is exactly what Leroux had done in the Boer War in color. The book is the first of two volumes of the Anglo-Boer or South African War, which pitted the two Boer republics of Transvaal and the Orange Free State against British imperial might. In this one, Leroux covers the conventional part of the war from October 1899 to June 1900, when Lord Roberts occupied the Boer republics. The pictures show the Boer strikes into Natal and the Cape Colony, the sieges of British garrison towns at Ladysmith, Kimberley and Mafeking, as well as some of the major battles of the war. Paging through the book, it is at those long-ago clashes, colonial contrivances, and yes, foolishness and tragedy, turn as live historical theatre. These are people with blood pumping through their veins, harsh sun in their eyes, and sensible clothes for the tasks of the moment. If ever there is a visual argument to be made for the authenticity of the photograph, this is it. In a curious twist of modern technological sus, Titus Leroux had not only revitalized memory, but brought the ghost to life, vibrantly and engagingly present. It's a brilliant publication. Staying local, Anthony Frijon joins us with his voice of liquid gold to chat about Emperor of Dust by Jonathan Spencer. This is going to be a tricky review to write. Let me explain. Emperor of Dust by Jonathan Spencer is the third book in his series about the adventures of William John Hazard of the Marines and the men of Nine Company, 
set in the 18th century. Let me explain the tricky part. If you enjoy an excellent, well-written, informative action-adventure book, you'll enjoy Book 1, Napoleon's Run, and Book 2, Lords of the Nile, where the pace, adventure, and hazards, sorry about that, never let up. Now, Book 3, Emperor of Dust, is available. Every bit as exciting and page-turning, is that English, as the previous two books. But here is the tricky bit. If you haven't read the first two books, how much do I reveal without giving anything away and spoiling the enjoyment you'll get from the prequels? Although it isn't a prerequisite to have read the first two, I just think it adds to the enjoyment of sharing the journey so superbly laid out by Jonathan Spencer in the previous books. Back to Emperor of Dust. Napoleon has successfully invaded Egypt, but has lost his fleet, destroyed by Admiral Nelson at the Battle of Abukir Bay. His army strikes south and captures Cairo. I won't go into any detail about Hazard's involvement, but I can disclose that in Book 1, Hazard started out as a lieutenant, and by Book 3, has advanced to Major. Back in London, on the top floor of Admiralty House, a meeting is held, and a plan to ferment an uprising in Cairo against Napoleon is unveiled, with the intention of drawing the Ottoman Empire into declaring war on the French. Hazard is only too aware of the danger this presents to the Kyrenes, and the price they will pay. The cynical world of politics even then. The uprising in Cairo takes place, with the consequences Hazard had predicted would occur. To add to that, there's an outbreak of plague, action and drama laid out expertly by Jonathan Spencer. Napoleon sets out to invade the Holy Land. Citizen Darien, Hazard's nemesis, has inveigled his way into Napoleon's headquarters, and once again they cross swords, literally. The fall of Jaffa and the siege of Accra bring home the horrors of war, and is so often the case the innocents pay a terrible price, a seamless blending of fact and fiction in the hands of a master storyteller. This is faction at its very best, Emperor of Dust, from Jonathan Spencer, published by Canelo Books, just what one needs on a cold, wet winter's night. Somewhere over the rainbow way up high There's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby where over the rainbow skies are blue And the dreams that you dare to dream Really do come true 
true Someday I'll wish upon a star And wake up where the clouds are far behind me Where troubles melt like lemon drops Way above the chimney tops That's where sung by Willie Nelson and featured in the film The Wizard of Oz. In May, Jonathan Anser launched his new book, Menches in the Trenches, which is about Jewish foot soldiers in the anti-apartheid struggle. This book has a forward by Tabo and Becky. Philip Todros invited Jonathan into our own trenches, the FMR studio, to chat about the book. Over to you, Philip, and welcome back to the show, Jonathan. Menches in the Trenches, Jewish Foot Soldiers in the Anti-Apartheid Struggle, is by Jonathan Anser and has a forward with Tabo Mbeki, our former president, and who writes a roll call of Jewish heroes and heroines, both well-known and unsung, which I think is a very honourable tribute. Jonathan, getting into this book, maybe you'd like to tell us about that and maybe some surprises you had in the material you discovered. Yeah, so I was commissioned to write the book and it was, a, you know, doing things that I love the most interviewing good people. I'd recently written a couple of books about spies, and those weren't good people. So I had an opportunity to write about good people, people who did amazing things. And also looking back into our history, which is something that fascinates me. So that's how I got into the book. There were many surprises. Finding out about the Levy's identical twins, I managed to interview them when they were 90 years old during the hard lockdown on Zoom. So having 
Norman Levy and Leon Levy on my screen, not knowing which Levy was which. But they were giants of the struggle, but they have been invisible. I had an opportunity to explore my own family's background, finding out that my grandfather had been a member of the Garment Workers Union, which was a union that was led by Solly Sachs, L.B. Sachs's father. And I found out that the King David school bus had been used in the struggle against apartheid. Nobody knows about that. So there were lots of little surprises that I found very, very surprising. Finding out about all these people, how difficult was that in terms of outreach networking and establishing who was still available to interview? We had a little committee that we formed and that was sort of a, a, a guidance. In fact, it was quite easy to find people. There were lots of Jewish people who were involved in one way or, or the other. And my brief was to find people that we didn't really know about or we didn't know about at all or people who were in danger of being forgotten, like Solly Sachs. So finding the people wasn't difficult. Leaving people out, that was the difficult part. Um, so do you think there's going to be a follow-up uh, oh, series? <laughs> yes, I'm hoping there will be one. And, um, you know, the book title mentions in the trenches. And as my mother pointed out when the book was published, the, the plural of a mensch is actually mention, not uh, menches. And so I'm hoping that if there's a, a sequel, we'll call it Honorable Mention. Well, you'll get your Yiddish right. And I'm sure <laughs> you'll put it up, make a lot of people happy, in, including them and the ones who've been forgotten. Now, how difficult you were doing this during the COVID period and, in fact, trying to establish were some of the connections also overseas, uh, thank heavens for Zoom? Absolutely. I mean, before this, I, I'm not sure how it would have been possible be, before Zoom became sort of a, a word that we actually know about, entered our vocabulary. Um, and it just made it a lot easier because uh, in one aspect, because you, you suddenly had people who weren't doing anything and had time to be interviewed. So, so there is an advantage to, the, was, to, to lockdown. Yeah. The other thing that I found very interesting and perhaps is worthy of a book in itself is the area of arts and culture. And the government at that stage, I think even today, doesn't quite understand the power of the visual and performing arts. Maybe there's a book in that because I don't think it's gone into sufficiently in your Absolutely. book. Absolutely. I think there are lots of areas that hasn't that I haven't been able to expand. And I'm hoping, I think every one of the chapters could be a book in and of itself. So there's a chapter on lawyers and a chapter on journalists and a chapter on, you know, we look at King Kong and, and the role that the Jewish community played in that fantastic musical. They are, I'm very pleased to have included Barney Simon and also Lionel Abrams, who I think definitely people who we don't talk enough about, we don't remember properly. But even someone like Johnny Clegg, Johnny songs Clegg, and yes. things like that, which so, yeah. made, made a contribution which people don't perhaps acknowledge or understand. Yeah. And and then nuances yeah. to what an activist really is. Absolutely. The reason we didn't include Johnny, it was a big debating point, was because he is well known. And we were trying to get to people that aren't that well known. Well, you've certainly done a good job. And if you want to try and get some understanding of both our history and the people significantly involved in that and the move to where we are today, you need to get a copy of Menches in the Trenches by Jonathan Anser. so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side rainbows are visions 
and only illusions and rainbows have nothing to hide so we've been told and some choose to believe it i know they're wrong wait and see someday we'll find it the rainbow connection the lovers the dreamers and me who said that every wish would be heard and answered and wished on the morning star somebody thought of that and someone believed it and look what it's done so far what's so amazing that keeps us stargazing and what do we think we might see someday we'll find it the rainbow connection the lovers the dreamers and me all of us It's probably magic Have you been half asleep and have you heard voices I've heard them calling my name Is this the sweet sound that calls the young sailors the voice might be one and the same I've heard it too many times to ignore it It's something that I'm supposed to be Someday we'll find it The rainbow connection The lovers, the dreamers and me La 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 da 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 Someday we'll find it the rainbow connection the lovers the dreamers and me la da 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 la da 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 that was the rainbow connection from the muppet movie sung by louise howlett before we head into the final segment of the show, I'd like to thank Mwandi Lobi and Ewan Inglis for everything they do behind the scenes at FMR every month, enabling us to come over and spend a magic hour chatting about books. And now a book about trees, which is kind of messy if you think about it, since books are made of trees. John Hanks joins us with a book called Boabs for Young and Old Alike by Estelle Byrne. What a pleasure it's been to review a delightful book with the title Bear Babs for Young and Old Alike, written and illustrated by Esther Byrne and completed when she was 92 years old, to bring together some 40 years of passionate observations and a unique style of artistic expression to capture so much of what is really fascinating about the life of the extraordinary Bear Babs of Southern Africa. It takes a special skill to produce a book designed for sharing with children and grandchildren, 
and I have no doubt that this production will capture the interest of readers of all ages. More than any other tree, baobabs demonstrate an exceptional individuality of shape, growth form, bark colour and fruit size and shape, illustrated superbly by Estelle in a way that will keep you turning the pages looking for more. But what I'm sure will hold the attention of everyone is the way in which he's captured facts and legends about the tree of life, as it is known, describing how almost every part of the tree can be utilised, eaten, drunk, lived in, admired, and indeed marvelled at, going further to liken a baobab to a pharmaceutical shop because of the surprising number of herbal remedies for microbial diseases and bacterial and fungal problems. For example, leaf infusions have been used to treat a range of ailments and root infusions used for skin disorders. The pulp is known to fight the ravages of aging, which certainly appeals to me as a grandfather. With this amazing witness of potential cures, local people have started collecting baobab fruits and taking them to centres where various products are being processed commercially for sale and upmarket chemists. Look out for them. To keep the grandchildren interested, Estelle has included for fun some of the myths and mysteries about a tree that is so well established in many local cultures. Just some examples. Soak baobab seeds and drink the liquid. You will be safe from crocodiles. And here's another one. If you want your baby boy to grow big and strong, bathe him in baobab bark infusion, but be careful not to wet his head, otherwise it might swell. Such an engaging style of writing makes for compelling reading for all ages. But with this book, the artwork of Estelle adds a special new dimension. Opposite the list of colour pages are these words, and I quote, They say a picture is worth a thousand words. TV pictures are superb, but they flash on and our retinas and are gone, and the talk is never ending. A book makes no sound, and the pictures are always visible. Just open and enjoy. End quote. This is a book you must get for young and old alike in your family and open and enjoy it. The title again, Bear Babs for Young and Old Alike. It's written and illustrated by Estelle Byrne, was published in 2021 and self-published by the author, but it's available from the Botanical Society Bookshop in Kirstenbosch at 400 Rand. This next segment is a great way to end the show. FMR's very own Rodney Trudgeon chats to Brian Inkpen about a book called More Tugs at My Heart. Hearing about this book led me on a massive book and info hunt. If you don't know anything about tugboats, a world of wonder awaits you. I have been fascinated, and I think I can say tugboats are now a big new zone of interest for me now. Who would have thought? Good to be here on Book Choice, and the book we're talking about is called More Tugs at My Heart, One Man's Unique Legacy to South Africa's Maritime Industry. And it was written by Brian Ingpen and Oki Grappo. And apart from the tugs, Oki's story is the backbone of this book. And I've invited Brian Ingpen into the studio to talk about the book. I recently did a People of Note with Brian about his book called Cape Town Docklands. Brian, this is another beautifully illustrated book, but it really is the story of Oki Grappo, isn't it? Yes, uh, 
Oke Grappo is a remarkable man, and um, I invited him to come along to talk to the young people at the Law Hill Maritime Centre in Simonstown, because he's an expert in salvage, and we had just completed a module on salvage, and he came along and he was absolutely amazing with the young people on their level and provided some interesting background to some of the stories of salvage along the coast. And from then on, we clicked a little bit, and uh, we used to meet regularly for a cup of tea or coffee. And uh, slowly but surely, his stories came out uh, about his life. I knew nothing about his background. And uh, slowly, these stories came to light. And I said to him one day, Oki, what do you feel about putting these things down for perhaps even your family? And he said, yeah, well, who who would be interested? I said, you'd be surprised. <laughs> you said he was a bit, could be a bit gruff, didn't you? <laughs> but a big heart, big heart yeah, and yeah. a very kind man. And uh, eventually, after a bit of persuasion, he agreed that we should put something together. And at first it was going to be a sort of a family-only thing. But I uh, became quite aware that this was a story that many should read. Mm-hmm. Uh, it starts with total hardship after the war in Germany. Uh, he was born prior to the war and lived through the war and saw the the after effects of the war and the total devastation of places like Kiel and Hamburg. And that was a, as a child he saw that. And he saw further damage as he emigrated with his family via Rotterdam to South Africa. And there was damage in Rotterdam and uh, so the the awareness of what war can do uh, came home to him as a child. But he immigrated to South Africa. His family settled in Cape Town for a while and then went up to uh, Swakopmund. Uh, his father had uh, established himself in the fishing industry, and that meant that obviously Walfus Bay would be a handy place for him to establish his business. Mm-hmm. And he built a, a fishing boat in Cape Town, uh, he took it up to Walfus Bay, and the rest is history. And some history it was, which is what you picked up, uh, Brian, as you were saying, because his life then was devoted to the sea, wasn't it, and to shipping. He was a maritime person down to his fingertips. Yes, he'd learned the, the ways of the sea early on, even in Kiel, uh, as a child. Mm. Uh, but then later on he went to the General Boater at Gordon's Bay for a two-year training course. He went to sea on a tramp ship for three years and then moved into uh, conventional shipping and uh, even had a spell on the diamond mining vessels off the coast and then uh, moved into whaling, which wasn't really his cup of tea, but uh, eventually back into South African Lines, which was a German-owned company at the time, and uh, from there into Safarine, where he really made a name for himself in South African uh, shipping circles. Brian, what is the connection with tugs? Was he a particularly interested tug man? Uh, He was master of a tug off the coast uh, during the days of the diamond recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, She was tasked to tow barges and things like that around. So he knew tugs very, very well. Uh, But he was uh, one of the people to establish the South African salvage tug operation off the coast and was very much involved in the construction and delivery and subsequent operation of the uh, S.A. John Ross and S.A. Volrod Baltimore. The John Ross became S.A. Mandler after several name changes, Uh, but he was the man who 
who was behind that for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And subsequent to that, or shall we say as a result of that also, he inspired many other people in the salvage industry in South Africa. As with your other book about Cape Town Docklands, there are really magnificent pictures in this book. It's been beautifully illustrated, both of tugs and container ships and the various other styles of ships, which makes it sort of quite attractive as a coffee table book anyway, apart from the the riveting story about Oki Grappo. Yeah, we went through various kinds of shipping. Um, he was involved in the construction of uh, some bulk carriers to carry iron ore out of Saldana Bay. Um, and that took him to Eastern Europe uh, at the start of the Balkan War. And, mm-hmm. I mean, on one trip through there, he, his car had a few bullet holes in it and so a bit Gosh. of intrigue and drama there. But um, Oki saw it through. And he was also involved in the construction of a container ship for Safarine uh, in Pula in the old Yugoslavia. And that was also at the start of the war. And that ship, in fact, uh, took, I think it was a rocket-propelled grenade uh, through a superstructure while she was fitting out. Um, so it was quite a, an interesting time uh, for Oki and his team. But gosh, what a life he's had, according to this book. Anyway, and I'm so glad you've managed to get it down on paper and in such a beautiful production. The book is called More Tugs at My Heart, One Man's Unique Legacy to South Africa's Maritime History, with Brian Ingpen, who's been my guest here on Book Choice, and Oki Grappo. And if you want a copy of this book, which I thoroughly recommend, I must say, you can get it from Brian Ingpen. And your address, Brian? Brian at capeports.coza. There we go. Thanks very much, Brian. Thank you, Rodney. I hope you'll join us again soon with more bookish interviews. And thanks also to our sponsors, Exclusive Books, and to our regular reviewers for pulling us into your reading lives with such generosity of spirit every month. And to all the authors who joined us today, both in person and through their books. As always, I'm your host, Paige Nick, and I look forward to book choice again on the first Monday of July. Until then, happy reading, and we're playing out with I'm Always Chasing Rainbows by Ken Higgins.
Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. The Exclusive Books recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books, locally and internationally. Exclusive Books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery and more. Pop into your nearest Exclusive Books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za.